Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day where we can gather together as believers in Christ to worship and proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And God, I pray that those would not be words that are lost on us. I pray that in this time as we sit and we sing and we reflect upon your word that our hearts would be convicted. I pray that... Uh, that the lies and, and sort of common struggles that we can deal with on a daily basis would be removed and that our eyes would be open to the truth of your word. God, help us to delight the thing in the things that you delight in. Look forward to the hope that you have set before us and that that would change the way we live every moment of every day. God, we thank you for the hope we have in Christ an eternal, everlasting hope. It's in His name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> you know, people, many people today don't know what to think about the afterlife. And what happens when you die? Do you become like a ghost or a spirit? Or is, it, is death just it? Is it over at that point? You know, many assume that, that the soul is indestructible, that it continues on, but... Uh, actually, in the last few decades, it's been proven that that view has actually declined. Less people believe that than they used to. Most of us just kind of take it for granted. You know, we just kind of assume that no matter really how we live or what we do in this life or how little we relate to God in this present life, we're guaranteed to be with Him in eternity. Some believe in reincarnation, right? That we just kind of recycle from one type of being to another based upon how we live this present life. Either it's going to be better or it's going to be worse. Many are agnostics. They claim nothing. They believe nothing. They're okay with the possibility, right? But most of us kind of think that, well, in death we just kind of lose consciousness, right? We can't remember. We're not just kind of actively thinking, and so what's the point? Why should that be an issue for us? Others just outright deny the possibility that our souls are really basically little more than biological, like just, just responses of biological mechanisms. But most of us, I think maybe all of us could be fall guilty of this. Most of us are caught up in our present lives so much, what's happening today, what's happening in the here and now, that we never give thought to the future. We never give thought to what happens after death. And when we do happen to think about it, let's face it, science has kind of influenced us. We're skeptics. And so we say, okay, well, how can I hold to a belief of something that is unquantifiable and immeasurable? How can I believe in something that is not empirical? You know, for centuries, people have wrestled with these issues. This is not a new thing, right? This goes far beyond the modern age of the Enlightenment or Darwinism, right? It's not that the development of scientific method has somehow kind of came in and forced people to deal with this archaic notion of the afterlife. It's always been there, right? Like Buddhism, for example. Buddhism... Right? believes that the soul, the consciousness of the soul, is kind of absorbed back into the cosmos. You kind of cease to be. Well, that, that, happened, that, that started in the 5th century B.C. Hinduism believes the reincarnation thousands of years earlier. 
I mean, let's face it. Ever since Genesis 3, people have wondered, what, what's going to be the result of death? What's going to happen now that we can't eat of the tree of life? Ever since Genesis 5, people were wondered, hey, what happened to that dude Enoch? Where did he go? Right? This is not a new issue. In our passage this morning, we'll see that Jesus is dealing with a group of mockers who do not believe in the immortality of the soul. They come in and they attack him on the issue of the resurrection. And what we will see is that Jesus doesn't ignore the issue, nor does he just kind of bow down to cultural preference. But neither does he try to build a case of the resurrection on apologetic or philosophical theorems. He doesn't try to establish scientific empirical proofs to somehow show that God can raise the dead to life. Nor does he argue for the validity of near-death experiences to confirm that heaven is real. And he certainly doesn't recruit little kids to write books about it. Instead, Jesus argues that the reality of eternity is substantiated on the truthfulness of Scripture and is verified in the power of God. The resurrection is real. And it is found only by knowing the power of God through His Word. So please turn with me to Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. It's page 848 in the Bibles there in the chairs. I'd encourage you to read along silently as I read it aloud. Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. It says, And the Sadducees came to Jesus, who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they will neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Now this passage identifies three common errors in our claim to faith in God. Okay. Now I'm going to deal with them from the shiniest, the one that always catches our gaze and draws our attention and we want to focus on, but is actually the least essential issue, all the way up to the one that seems to be the most mundane, but is actually the most important. Okay. So as our interest in these errors kind of goes from top down to bottom, the importance of them actually increases as we progress. Okay. Now the first eye-catching but least essential error in this passage is the assumption that the afterlife is simply a continuation of this earthly life. Now remember, this, this encounter that Jesus has with these Sadducees takes place on Tuesday of the Passion Week. 
Right On Sunday, he entered into Jerusalem. On Monday, he overturned the tables. He rebuked the temple. And now on Tuesday, just a few days before he's going to die on the cross, he's doing battle with the political and religious leaders of his day. This is now their third attempt to try to defeat the authority of Jesus. In round one, they sent in priests and scribes and elders to question the origins of his authority. In round number two, they sent in Pharisees and Herodians questioning him on whether or not they should pay taxes to Caesar. And now here in round three, these Sadducees question Jesus on the resurrection. Each time they are trying to trap Jesus. They either want to make a fool of him, get the people to turn away from him, or they hope that he might incriminate himself before Rome. In verse 18, Mark tells us, And the Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. So right off the bat, we know where these guys stand theologically. They don't believe in the resurrection. They are annihilationists. They believe that the end of the human soul is at death. At death, you are no more that you cease to exist. They are existentialists. Philosophically, that's where they are. So Kierkegaard, Dojewski, Nietzsche, Sartre, Camus, they have nothing on these guys. And like all existentialists, they like to sarcastically mock what they consider to be the absurd. The reason why the Sadducees deny the resurrection is because they didn't believe that it was explicitly revealed in the Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Bible. See, these guys only believed that God clearly revealed himself through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, those first five books of the Bible. And they said that those, they claimed that those did not teach explicitly the resurrection. Okay? So, the Pharisees believed that all the Old Testament was inspired by God. And so in this case, it's actually the Sadducees who are the conservatives while the Pharisees are the progressives since they actually hold to later revelation. Sadducees also, by the way, didn't believe in the existence of angels, even though the Pentateuch talks about angels at least 32 times. So you know, this is kind of where they stand with regards to the Word of God. Okay? This is helpful in understanding it. We also know from history that the Sadducees were a minority sect. All right? They're com- primarily comprised of priests who controlled the temple and its wealth. Right? So they are a major power in Jerusalem. Right? They are the guys that have all the power because they're associated with the temple that's there in Jerusalem. But when it comes to Judea as a whole, the Pharisees are actually more popular with the people. <clears throat> the high priest was always a Sadducee. Okay? And so... If Jesus actually turned the people away from these religious leaders to follow after him, these guys stand to lose the most. Okay? They're going to lose political power. They're going to lose wealth more than anyone else. And so they want to, they're they're attacking Jesus. They want to shut him down and make him look foolish by considering this absurd doctrine. And they approach him with a conundrum that they've probably been using against the Pharisees for years. Okay? This is not a new argument. They just wanted to see what Jesus had to say about it. It's a bit like one of those asinine questions that people ask, like, can God create a rock so heavy that he can't lift it? 
right? Where it pits God's omnipotence against his omnipotence, right? It's just foolish. I mean, what does it matter? Your premise is wrong, right? Can God create a sky so blue that it's no longer blue? I don't know. It doesn't matter. Right? (laughs) Anyway, they sarcastically argue against the notion of the resurrection with an Old Testament practice called Leverite marriage. Okay? Leverite, it comes from a Latin word meaning brother. Brother marriage. Not that you marry your brother, right? But that, you know, if your brother has a wife and she dies, then you marry to take on that responsibility. Okay? They said that that doesn't work with resurrection. Look at verses 19 through 23. They say, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. And now here's their hypothetical. Okay? They say, There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Okay? Leverite marriage is supported in Genesis 38, Deuteronomy 25, and Ruth 3 and 4. Okay? They all support this idea of Leverite marriage. Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6 says that if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son... The wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. This is the essential part of understanding Leverite marriage. Okay, Her husband's brother shall go in to her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Okay, so here's the real issue behind this idea of Leverite marriage. It's what happens to the inheritance of a man when he, if he dies without an heir. What happens to that land that God has given to him? Okay? In order to keep that inheritance in his name and in the name of his family, Levite marriage laws were brought in to call his brother to take on his wife and produce an heir for him so that this dead man's inheritance would not be given to a stranger. It would actually continue in his name. So Levite marriage was established to protect the widow, but also primarily to keep that inheritance of God's promised land in the family that it was given to. Now, we don't need to worry about this today because Jesus has fulfilled the civil law. And we're not living in the promised land, right? That's not where the promise lies. So don't freak out if you have a brother and you happen to think, man, what if, what if he dies? Do I have to marry my sister-in-law? No, Jesus took care of it. You're cool. All right? It's fine. So the Sadducees argue from this law to prove how foolish the idea of the resurrection would be. Because if this law stands and the resurrection exists, then this woman would have seven husbands in eternity. The resurrection would be in contradiction with this explicit law of God, this law that couldn't be clear. And so the resurrection has to be false in that case. That's their logic. There's just one problem. They left out a premise. Okay, their argument is incomplete because, and so, because of that, they drew the wrong conclusion. The reality is there's no problem with the resurrection in the argument or the, um, only that the assumed premise that marriage is forever. 
You see, in order for their argument to be right, it has to go like this. If Leverite marriage stands and marriage is forever and the resurrection exists, then this woman would have seven husbands in eternity. Okay? But it's not an issue if marriage is not forever. There's no discrepancy. There's no issue between liberate marriage and resurrection if marriage is not forever. And that's exactly what Jesus says in verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, neither will they marry nor are they given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Okay, this is the fault in their logic. They assume that marriage is forever. They assume that the afterlife is simply a continuation, a better continuation, but a continuation nevertheless of this present earthly life. They mistakenly think that there's a one-to-one correspondence between life in this world and the resurrected life, but that couldn't be farther from the truth. It says that we, that our relationship in heaven, our relationships will be like that of angels, right, who neither marry or have children. The reality is life is temporary. And because life is temporary, your relationships in this life are temporary. And that doesn't mean that you won't know your wife or you won't know your children or you won't know your loved ones in heaven. That's not the issue. But everything changes. Everything's meant to change because you only have one relationship that is unseverable, that is eternal, and that is your relationship with God. Marriage is a gift from God. I mean, it is foundational and essential to the continuation of life in society. We learn so many things in marriage. We learn intimacy. We learn love. We learn sacrifice. We learn what it means to be united to another like no other relationship we have on this earth. Through marriage, we learn we learn to trust one another. We learn to help and depend on one another. And for most of us, the family is the closest we can get, in just earthly terms, to experiencing unconditional love. And because that's the case, we hold the family, we hold marriage up as this ultimate thing, when in reality it's not. Your vow to your spouse is, until death do we part. Your marriage vow ends in death. This is not a permanent institution. It was never intended to be a permanent institution, but it points to one that is. It's a reflection of the greater reality, of a greater marriage. Our relationship with God through Jesus Christ alone will continue uninterrupted. Marriage is given as a reflection, as a pointer to that greater reality in, in the marriage of Christ and the church. You know, it's funny, when I preached at Quinn and Sadie's wedding, I, kind of, I preached on Revelation 19, and I talked about this very thing, that the ultimate reality is not their wedding date. The fact that they're uniting together, but it's ultimately that Christ is going to be forever and is forever united with his body, with his church, with his people. And that is what marriage points to. And you know what? People were down. They were so sad. It was weird. Like when they actually, when I said, you know, you, you know, Quinn, you can kiss your bride and they kiss, like there was nothing. I was like, what are you doing? You know, it's like, so I mean, it was sad, but it was true. And it was an indication actually of how, how often we kind of assume that Marriage is this ultimate thing. 
The reason why people didn't cheer at that moment is because they're like, they're just kind of, whoa, this is depressing. Now, if this seems like a downer to you, it shouldn't be. Okay? You see, the reality, the wonder, the hope of heaven is far more than the best of any and everything that this world has to offer. Everything that you can think of, the best that you can experience, right? Heaven is better than that. As great as marriage can be, it is not the ultimate expression of love and unity and intimacy and commitment that you will experience as a Christian. Your life with Christ is. Have you ever noticed how little the Bible describes heaven? You ever notice that? I mean, we we get a lot more description when it comes to hell than we do heaven, right? And the reason for that is because heaven is too wonderful to be described. I mean, how can you give people a picture based upon their earthly life of something that exceeds it and surpasses it in unbelievable ways? Right? It's just hard to do. The closest we get is like pearly gates and streets of gold, right? Which is far better than our gates of iron and streets of asphalt, but even that fails to compare. There's a huge difference between the two. It's like me trying to explain to my kids what I do. Right? I mean, you've ever done that? Like, my office is down in the basement, and Claire and the kids often come down there, and Claire, like, she comes in, she sees me, there's a book out in front of me, there's a computer open, she's like, he's not doing anything. So she crawls up into the seat, like, and she wants me to get her paper and a marker, and she starts coloring and talking to me, and I'm like, Claire, I have to work. And she's like, well, go ahead, you know? She's, you know, no big deal, you know? What are you doing? Nothing. You know, even Layden, you know, doesn't fully get it, even though he's eight. He can't truly understand what it is I do. It's like he has an idea, and as as hard as he tries to get, this is what Daddy does, he can't fully understand it. Or maybe it's like this. It's like trying to describe what mountains are like to someone who has only ever seen plains. Or trying to describe what the tropics are like to someone who has only ever lived on a tundra in the middle of ice. It's like trying to describe the ocean to someone who has only ever seen desert. They just can't grasp it. Right? That is what heaven is like. Right? We get these, these little pictures, and they're good pictures, but they're incomplete pictures, and they can't even begin to compare to what heaven will be like. Marriage, no matter how good, could ever reflect the picture of heaven accurately. God has so much more in store for us. And so if the idea that marriage is temporary is discouraging to you, I would, I would encourage you to pray about a few things. First of all, is this disappointment because you have viewed the afterlife, as basically a pain-free and sorrow-free continuation of this life. Have you, like the Sadducees, just kind of assumed that there's this one-for-one correspondence between the two? Another possibility. It's possible that you've made family or marriage an idol in your life. That you view it as this ultimate thing, right? That you're like, you know what? If I don't know, if I don't have this, I don't know how I'll I'll go on. Or as long as I have this, everything is fine. Okay? If you can answer that with marriage or family, then that, that's an indicator of an idol in your life. 
Or maybe it's not marriage. Maybe it's the idea of physical intimacy. Right? Because our culture feeds us this line all the time that the greatest experience, the greatest sense of fulfillment that you can ever have in this life is to be physically intimate with someone else. Right? You get it all the time. Do you find your identity and fulfillment in marriage or family or physical intimacy rather than in Christ? Third, have you made eternity about the family rather than about God? Do we celebrate what we hope to be given rather than the giver? Right? The motivation for heaven is to be with your dearly departed loved ones rather than to be with God. Has God taken a back seat to your family? And this ought to serve as a warning about our methods in ministry. Right? The church is not to be family-centered, but Christ-centered, right? It doesn't mean that we don't care about the family, right? It doesn't mean that we don't, we're not called to serve the families, to help them to become more Christ-like, right? Family is one of our values, but it is not the ultimate thing. Family is not the goal. Christ is. Or evangelism. We've got to watch our evangelistic methods, right? You don't go to somebody and say, hey, listen, the reason why you need to accept Jesus into your heart as Lord and Savior is so that you can be with Granny when she die, when you die, right? You don't want to, you don't want to be separated forever from Granny, do you? Right? We, we, we don't do that. Instead, we need to focus on the fact that you have been eternally reconciled to a glorious and holy God who created you and loved you so much that despite your continual rebellion against Him, He loved you enough to send His only Son to die and to rise in order to reconcile you to Himself. He took you from being an enemy to His child. That's the gospel. That's what it's about. And it centers on Christ. Friends, eternity is not about marital status. It's not about whether or not you're going to be married or single in heaven. That's not the issue. But that you would be completely united with Christ and His body as you behold your husband, as you behold your beloved, your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You will look upon His face and in that moment and every moment after that you will experience more love and more joy and more gratefulness than millions of your best days ever here and now. And so rejoice in that. Take hope in that. Trust in that. God has so much more in store for His children. And so trust in Him. It's going to blow your mind. So that's the issue that draws our gaze, right? You look at this passage, you immediately think about marriage, right? You do. It's okay, but you do. But that's not the main issue. The main problem here is that they deny, they know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Okay? So the first error is thinking that the afterlife is simply a continuation of this earthly life. The second error is a denial of the power of God to raise the dead. Now Jesus responds to their faulty assumption in verse 24. He says, Is this not the reason that you are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? 
Here's the thing. Denial of the resurrection is a denial of both. Mark has already told us in verse 18 that the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection. History has told us that the Sadducees reject all Old Testament scriptures besides the first five books of the Bible. They claim that the Pentateuch did not teach the resurrection. Now, the resurrection is everywhere. I mean, it's clear in the New Testament. Can we safely say that, right? But it's also very clear in the Old Testament, right? Um, For example, um, Isaiah 26, verse 19 says, Your dead shall live and the bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for the dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Or Daniel 12, verse 2, says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Job 19, verses 25 through 27 says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, for whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another, and my heart faints within me. These three Old Testament passages clearly teach the resurrection. The Sadducees rejected them because they came after the first five books of the Bible. Now, we'll see how Jesus responds from the Pentateuch in a minute. But before we do, we have to really see the real crux of the matter. These Sadducees did not believe in the afterlife. They believed that all rewards, that all blessings that you could receive from God happen in the here and now. Happen in this life. Okay? That this is the best you get. This is all there is. Think about this for a minute. Think about how crappy this is. Okay? I mean, if this life is all there is, is it even worth it? Right? Sure, there are great things like marriage and family and all that stuff, but there's also a lot of pain and agony and loss and hardship. Life is difficult. It is Filled with suffering. So what's the point? If this is all there is, what does that say about God? These Sadducees say that they believe in the one true sovereign God of all. The God of the heavens and the earth. The God who spoke and the world came into being. This all-powerful, almighty God, right? Who does nothing to help you in your suffering. Think about that. These Sadducees are under Roman oppression right now. Do you think that that's a pleasurable experience for them? Do you think that they have their best life now? Absolutely not. They don't. It's horrible. It's hard. It's difficult. And if this life is all there is, and God's not doing nothing about it, what does that say about God? Is He weak? Is he apathetic? Right? If this life is all there is and all your blessings happen here and now, look at your life. Is it that great? Is it where you want it to be? And if it's not, is that God's fault? Well, they would say, no, no, no. Here's the deal. God is a holy and righteous God. Right? God can have nothing to do with sin. Okay? So God cannot 
enact His power towards you because you have been separated from Him by your sin. So if you want to see God's power working for you, what you have to do is cleanse yourself from all sin. You have to cleanse yourself from all unrighteousness so that God can show His power towards you in this life. Now think about that. Right? Because what that ultimately means is that, okay, all you have is this life in the here and now, and God is not going to act until you're completely holy, so you need to save yourself. But save yourself to what? To be holy and die? Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. You see, this is foolishness. This is the problem with existentialism, right? This is the problem with theistic existentialism, right? Kierkegaard is basically a Sadducee. <laughs> it's hopeless. <laughs> What's the point? What's the purpose of this life? If this is all there is, and you're promised pain and suffering and hardship because you are a sinner. And God is going to sit back on His thumbs and let you deal with it. That is a bitter and despairing end. And I'm confident that this is why Nietzsche went mad. Because he saw that there was no point. It was going nowhere. Life is pointless unless Unless there's something more. You see, ultimately, to deny the resurrection means to deny the afterlife. And to deny the resurrection and the afterlife, you ultimately are denying the power of God. We think about this. The God who spoke the world into being, right? He said and there was. The God who created all life is not able to speak and recreate it. Right? The God who gives life, the God who causes your heart in your chest to beat, the God who gives you every single breath that you take, is not able, He's not powerful enough to raise the dead to life? The God who controls storms and plagues and animals and killed the firstborn of Egypt, the God who led His people with a pillar of cloud and of fire, the God who parted the Red Sea, the God who descended upon Mount Sinai in thunder and cloud and spoke and the water gushed from a rock and He fed millions of people miraculously for 40 years daily as they wandered in the wilderness. This God is not able to restore life. He's not able to restore the body to the soul. These are all examples from the Pentateuch, by the way. Examples that prove that God is more than powerful enough to raise the dead. Because you have to know when you look around at this world that there is something more than what is here. You are not here by accident and this life that is not all there is. You do not create meaning for yourself. That meaning was created for you by the God that sustains your life right here and right now. What about Abraham's hope? 
Right? Do you remember Genesis 22, what happened there? Abraham takes Isaac up on the mountain, right? Abraham took Isaac up on the mountain and he told his servants that they would return, that the two of them would return. Why did he say that if he knew that he was going up on the mountain to kill Isaac? Yeah, according to Hebrews 11, he reasoned that God would raise him from the dead. He knew, he understood that God's promise would be fulfilled through Isaac. And so if he was going to kill him, that God would raise him from the dead because God would have to fulfill his promise. Or what about the everlasting covenant of Genesis 17, right? God's covenant promise to Abraham is called an everlasting covenant. Meaning that it lasts forever, right? We get that, forever. Is that just because generations continue on endlessly, kind of trying to bring meaning to their life and worshiping a God who's not going to save them and they're only going to die and that's it? Or is there something more? Right? I mean, would God make a promise to the patriarchs to protect them to prosper them, to deliver them from their oppressors, right? To put his love upon them only to let them die and that be it. The end of their lives being annihilation and extinction of the soul. What is the point of that? Why would he do that? What would make that everlasting? And if, if it's not everlasting, then God's promise is unfulfilled. And if God's promise is unfulfilled, then God is a liar, he did not mean what he said. If the human soul is not eternal but temporary, only to be destroyed, then why on earth would God set his affections on it? Right? Why would he even bother communing with mankind when in, in, in a breath, in a life, it's gone? Poof, like a vapor. Unless there's something more. John Bailey wrote, if the individual can commune with God, then he must matter to God. And if he matters to God, he must share in God's eternity. For if God really rules, he can't be conceived as scrapping what is precious in his sight. No, God set his love on his people because he has an everlasting plan to restore them to himself for all eternity. And that plan comes through God's power being displayed in the resurrection of the dead. And so Jesus responds in verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Which again, I've already said, the Sadducees denied angels despite it being mentioned 32 times in the Pentateuch. Jesus teaches... And he teaches the resurrection as a guarantee. He says, for when they rise from the dead. Right? If the resurrection isn't true, then Jesus is a false teacher. Jesus has also predicted his death and resurrection three times. In John chapter 10, he said, I alone have the power to lay my life down, and I have the power to take it up again. Right? If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then it proves that he's not the Son of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, listen, if the resurrection didn't happen, then you're still dead in your sin. You are without hope and most to be pitied. 
But, if the resurrection is real, then Jesus is the true teacher. If the resurrection is real, then Jesus is the Son of God. If the resurrection is real, then it proves that God's wrath against sin has been satisfied and that death, your enemy, has been defeated. If the resurrection is real, then all will be raised to stand before judgment, before the Christ, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If there is no resurrection, we are without hope. The Sadducees are dead wrong. This is not an optional doctrine. It is essential for salvation. Friends, there is a resurrection. Well, where are you on this doctrine? Have you struggled with it? This is a hard one to buy. James Garland says, Belief in the resurrection does not derive from what we can prove. Our faith in the resurrection is based on our faith in the power of God and that alone. Our hope cannot be based on human egoism that longs to survive the grave, but only in God who makes alive. The New Testament teaches the same God who gave us life in the first place will miraculously give us life again. Do you struggle with the fact that the thought, the idea that this world is all there is? Is there something that pulls at your conscience, that pulls at your soul, that says that there's something more? Or even do you go through life with longings, with desires that aren't satisfied? Do you know that all of these are echoes of your Creator? Every one of them are an indication that He has set in our hearts that there is something more. The eternity is set in the heart of man. The truth is, we're all going to be raised, every one of us, some to life and some to eternal condemnation. The longings for more will be revealed in eternity, but it will only be revealed for those who have repented of their sins and trust in the Lord Jesus. They alone will be raised to life with God. But those who continue to mock, those who continue to scoff, those who continue to live for the here and now, to ignore Him, to live as if this is my world and I'm God, they will be raised to eternal condemnation. Your relationship with God is eternal, even if you ignore it. You get that? Even if you spurn Him, and you reject Him, and you outright deny Him, that relationship, the way that you have said it, is going to continue for eternity. So turn to Christ that you might be raised to walk with Him. Don't simply live for the moment. Don't simply focus on what you have to do today. Listen, if you keep this in mind, that there is a resurrection, that there is an eternal hope, it's going to change the way that you think about everything. It's going to change the way you act. It's going to change the way you live. It's going to change the things that you love. 
No longer will your life be caught up in temporal things that fade and cannot satisfy. Instead, they will be set on what is imperishable, what is unfading, what is undefiled, and that is your inheritance in Christ. Your relationship with God is eternal. And because it is eternal, it is the most important thing about you. So the first error is mistaking the afterlife as simply a continuation of this earthly life. The second error is denying the power of God to raise the dead. And the third and most important error is the ignorance of Scripture and to whom it points. Now, this is the most important because without God's word, we can't truly understand anything about anything. Okay, we can't fully comprehend this world or our purpose in this life. We can't truly understand morality or truth. We can't even truly understand the meaning of words unless God first speaks to us. And in terms of our passage today, we can't understand the immortality of the soul nor the power of God without Scripture. This is why Jesus says in verse 24, Is this not the reason you are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? Now these guys rejected most of the Old Testament. right? They rejected most of Scripture. And Jesus could have still confronted the Sadducees with the the prophets and the writings because it's still scripture, right? But he didn't. Now, I've already mentioned a number of instances in the first five books of the Bible where Jesus clearly indicates that God is powerful enough to cause the dead to rise. Jesus could have argued from Abraham's hope in Genesis 22. He could have argued about the everlasting covenant from Genesis 17. But instead, he goes to Exodus 3, verse 6. The verse that establishes the very nature of God's revelation of himself to the man who would write the first five books of the Bible. Far more than evaluating their erring theology, Jesus exposes their complete misunderstanding of the scriptures. Verses 26 and 27. As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Now Jesus goes right to the first words that God says to Moses, the one who's going to write the Pentateuch. Right, And so if you misunderstand these words, you misunderstand the Pentateuch. And if you don't get the Pentateuch right, then you have no foundation for the rest of Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament. You have to get it. And if you can't understand that, then you have no way of knowing what is the Word of God and what is not the Word of God. Everything depends on whether or not you get Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. And they don't get a word of it. God spoke to the man that he would use to tell his story from creation to the entrance of the Hebrews into the promised land. And he said to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I still am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That's what it means. 
Now, God would not claim to be the God of ghostly shadows of people who no longer existed. God would not claim of Himself to be the God of corpses. He's greater than that. The living and eternal God is their God. He remains their God even in death because the soul of man never dies. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Their souls remain. The soul of man continues and one day it will be restored to its former body to live in the presence of this loving, sustaining, life-giving, redeeming, and resurrecting God for all eternity. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus' argument for the reality of the resurrection is based upon the scriptural understanding that the call of God establishes a relationship between God and man. And that once that relationship is established, because God is eternal, it is eternal. It bears the promise of God, so it cannot be ended, even by death. The relationship is the result of the promise and power of God as it is revealed in His perfect world, word that conquers every last enemy, including death itself. And so in order for God to be faithful to who He is, to all His purposes, and to all His promises, God will raise the dead to life. In citing Exodus 3, verse 6, Jesus showed how resurrection faith is attached in profound ways to the central concept of biblical revelation. Right? God, as He reveals Himself in all His being, His very nature, His purposes, His character, His actions, His assurance of salvation for His people, all that He has revealed throughout Scripture, either implicitly or explicitly, contains a guarantee of the resurrection. And if they failed to see it because they were ignorant, then that's on them. Because God has made it clear in His Word. They are badly mistaken. They are quite wrong. Friends, we have no excuse before God. Let's seek Him in His Word. The only hope we have of knowing about what life is about and its ultimate end, the only way that we can truly know God and live our lives before Him is by knowing His Word. And so how are you doing that? What's your strategy? What are you practicing? Do you realize that we have more tools available to us than any other generation has ever dreamed of? We have more at our disposal, and that makes us more culpable. That makes us more responsible. Do you guys have a reading plan? Are you diligently studying God's Word? Are you acquiring tools and resources that are going to help you to understand Scripture? Are you going to the foundations courses? Right, that's what they're there for. Just practically, I'd encourage every one of you to get an ESV study Bible. Very practical way of studying God's Word. The resources in there are great. The articles, the comments, everything. It's just pure gold. That's an easy way simply to get started. Okay? This is the most practical of all the things that we can do. But yet it's the most important. So how are you doing that? 
Again, we have these resources available to us, so we've got no excuse. You are not going to be able to claim ignorance. So what are you going to do about it? We are fortunate to have God's completed word. We are fortunate to be able to read and see God's ultimate revelation. All that God has done, all that he is doing, all that he will do centers around one man who fulfills it all. The word made flesh. The way, the truth, and the life. The resurrection and the life. Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. I mean, praise God that Jesus believed on Friday on Good Friday, what he taught here on Tuesday and, and made evident in demonstration in his life on Easter Sunday. He's proven it. And because of him, we do have a hope and a future. But it's nothing like this world has to offer. And so we await and we hope and we echo alongside John in 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when Jesus appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. Friends, let that be our hope. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you are a God who keeps your promises. An eternal God that has has created us so that we might know and love you. God, forgive us for our failings. Forgive us for our ignorance and how we just kind of make assumptions and we go through life just kind of living as if this is my world and I'm God and not even thinking, not even giving light to you and recognizing that we are eternally culpable for all that we do in the here and now. God, You are a gracious God who created us. You are a God who has revealed Yourself to us. I pray that You would cause our hearts to faint as we think about the fact that You have offered us eternal reconciliation through Your Son, Jesus Christ. God, I pray that we would desire to know Him, that we would experience the power of Your resurrection, and we know that ultimately that comes through Your Word. God, Let us be men and women of faith, men and women who trust in the power of your word to save souls. God, may we wait in hope for the opportunity that we will one day have to look upon our Lord and Savior face to face. And may that be more of a delight to us than anything that this world has to offer. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.